Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. How many of you would like to see a revival in our land? How many of you want to see Canada have awakening? Okay, I'm going to come back to that. Most of you are cheering. Most of you are excited. Revival always starts within us. But from the time Christ died and resurrected, the church has survived and thrived. Well, mostly thrived. (laughs) There's been some horrible seasons in there. And I'm going to give you an extremely brief summary, and I'm going to leave out a bunch of stuff and condense some things into some group headings just to give you an idea of this. But really, the first 60, 67, 70 years or so, they call it the apostolic age. And that's when the apostles went out and took the gospel of the kingdom everywhere. And, you know, the 72 that you saw and the, 12, the 11 with Paul, 12, you know, they went around and they, they took the kingdom of God and they spread it everywhere in the Roman Empire. And then there was persecution. They came up against the church and that went on till about 313 AD, and then they kind of stopped persecuting the church, and you know, there was these seasons of refreshing, there was these seasons of persecution, but the church was kind of growing and thriving through that period, which ended somewhere around 467 AD. Now, it's hard, because when you're talking about a period, like, it's not like there's a day when this age stops and this one begins. It's kind of like this happens and then over a period of time, this one kind of fades out and this one kind of evolves. Do you see what I'm talking about? So in 467, a guy named Odaeser, he was a barbarian statesman um, who um, coincidentally was an Aryan um, believer, which meant that, (laughs) it's kind of contradictory to me, but He believed that um, Jesus was uh, God's son, but he didn't believe that he was co-equal with God. The Arian heresy was they don't believe that it's father, son, and spirit. They just believe it's father, and then the son is kind of there, but he's not in the same rank as the father. Did everyone catch me? Okay, so when he killed the Roman governor at the time, uh, Romulus Augustus, that's kind of what they kind of, that was the, the fading of one era and it began what used to be known as the Dark Ages. I think now they call it the Middle Ages from around 467 to 1517. There's actually a lot of other divisions there, but I'm kind of summarizing this. And they called it dark because Christianity kind of, I don't want to say it decreased, but it decreased in influence in the earth at that time. And we know that somewhere in there, Rome kind of created their own version of Christianity that um, kind of evolved from there. And then Christianity in its truest sense, though, stayed, stayed around. You've got Christianity declining globally. You've got people falling away due to false doctrines. Some defected from the faith. Oh, somewhere in there around the 700s, the Muslim raids and, and uh, invasions began. And at the beginning, they conquered and killed a lot of people for their faith. Later, they were the people of the book and they were allowed to live, although they were subservient. Then you see the barbarians came in and started invading on the western 
coast and the non-Christian religions started taking preeminence. And, and the world really went dark for a long period of time. That said, we didn't know a lot about this era until more recently with some of the historical and archaeological digs that they've been doing and the research that they've been bringing out. But there wasn't a lot of information, which is why I think they originally called it dark. And then more recently, atheists are trying to kind of posture this concept that anything to do with religion produces darkness is what the atheists say. So any religion, whether it's Christianity or any other religion, produces darkness, so they call it the Dark Ages uh, for that reason. But around 1517, something happened, and, and really there was this reformation that happened, and Luther was one of the key figures in that, but there was many others at that time that were teaching. It just didn't produce a movement like it did. Luther was just at the right time at the right place, and there was an awakening of the church. And then later in North America, you know, history tells us that there's been three great awakenings. Can everyone say three? I'm not going to go into all the details of those, but I remember reading about these awakenings when I was young, and I remember Jonathan Edwards, you know, nearsighted and pretty monotone in his delivery. You know when someone talks like this and reads like this because that's... <laughs> so, but... When Jonathan Edwards was preaching, his, his message centers in the hands of an angry God. People in the audience could feel the flames of hell coming up and licking at their feet. And it got their attentions and great repentance came forth. There was many others. And as you start working through the first and the second and the third awakening, there was guys like uh, Booth, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army came up. And Spurgeon was another great teacher that was instrumental in Moody who started the Bible Institute and had a lot to do with many things in Christianity at that time. I remember a guy named John G. Lake was instrumental in this. And he was based out of Tacoma, Washington, the healthiest city in the world when he was there because of the healing anointing on his life. John G. Lake was a medical doctor who fell in love with Jesus and went out and healed the sick like Jesus said to do. In fact, he even did a test one time and he took the bubonic plague and he stuck it on his skin under a microscope <laughs> and they watched it immediately begin to die as soon as it touched his skin because the life of God was in him. There was a guy named Charles Finney. Charles Finney would walk into town and people would start falling on their knees and repenting of sin. One time I, re I remember reading, he was, he was walking through a factory, and as he was walking through, he didn't even say anything. People just started kneeling and, and calling on Jesus and repenting of their sin as he walked through because the presence of God was so strong upon his life. And there was an awakening. The bars would shut down when Finney came to town because no one was going there. So did the other houses of entertainment. We'll call them the body houses. Um, you know, um, they ceased because Jesus came on the scene and there was repentance. But I'm going to tell you something about Finney. Finney said, unless I had a spirit of prayer, I could do nothing. He also had Daniel Nash, or Father Nash, who went into town ahead of him, sometimes a week or two ahead of time, and would pray day and pray night for the presence of God to come into town. So by the time that Finney came into town, the atmosphere was ready for a revival, for an awakening, for people to come into relationship with the Creator. Prayer is paramount. If we are not a people of prayer, you will not see an awakening in your generation. Because if the church 
cannot pray. How's it going to happen? Finney goes on in his lectures on revival and he talks about how there's two things requisite to promote a revival. Prayer to influence God and God to influence the hearts of man. See, I don't influence anyone's hearts. God does. I don't save anyone. Jesus does. I take the message of hope and I proclaim it and hopefully God will work on someone's heart when I'm proclaiming the message of hope, when I'm proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, when I'm proclaiming the good news about Jesus and people will respond to that. We are just vessels, but you are also a vessel. Now, as I was kind of sitting on this, going through our history with the Great Awakenings, and, you know, really, Canada had the blessing back in the 90s, up in Toronto, the Toronto Blessing. And that was like a restoration of joy, I think, to the body of Christ, but I didn't see it catch on with a nationwide move of repentance where Canada as a whole shifted towards righteousness as a result of that. And I'm not discrediting the movement. I'm saying it wasn't an awakening. If we want an awakening, that's from coast to coast in Canada. We see people repenting of their sin and coming into the kingdom of God. I asked you at the beginning, how many of you want an awakening? How many remember that? How many remember their mouth moved and said yes? How many of you, I said, you want to see a revival where the church comes back and wakes up to the things of God? That starts with us, but it is not going to happen without prayer. We have to become a people of prayer. Have to, must. And some of you are people of prayer, because otherwise nothing would happen around here. Because I assure you, without prayer, we're nothing. Because we pray and we ask Jesus for direction and for guidance and for wisdom and for his presence and for his power to convict men of sin so that they too can come into the kingdom. But as I was looking at this, Jesus made some statements to his church in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. And there's seven churches and there's seven conversations that happen. And it fits very closely into this topic of great awakening that I want to talk to you about today. So let's go to Revelations chapter 2, verse 2. And I'm going to read for you from the church. First, first church he addressed was the church of Ephesus. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. Well, that's good. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars and you've patiently suffered from me without quitting. So he's encouraging Ephesus that they work hard and they're patiently enduring. But he says this, he says, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And then he goes back to the positive and says, this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. But see... They lost their first love. If we lose our first love, who's supposed to be our first love? Jesus. What does it say in Mark 12? What is that, the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that what Mark says? Chapter 12, 28, 29, 30. That's a great commandment. If you can't follow the Great Commandment, you will never follow the Great Commission. 
Great commandment first, love God, love others. But see, what happens is if we've lost our first love and we're not in relationship with Christ like we're supposed to be, it's gonna create a real problem for us when we start looking at the lost people loving others. But as people come into the church and God transforms their life and the, the, the pain of their past fades away and he restores them to wholeness and he heals them and he sets them free, we start forgetting about where we came from and we start getting cozy and comfortable and we start liking church and, you know, sometimes we even like the people at church. And we become the blasphemy club and not the go out and win the world club. So the warning to the church at Ephesus was go back to your first love. You know, I'm reminded all the time when I talk about this, <laughs> I love this. Husband and wife, been married a long time, they're in the car and they're talking one day as they drive down the road and this wasn't us, we didn't have this conversation. But the wife looks over, no, for real. <laughs> the wife looks over the husband and says, honey, do you remember back when we were dating and newly married and we used to be arm in arm as you drove down the road and I was right next to you and you know, and, and after she was done reminiscing, the husband looked over at the wife and said, sweetest, I never moved. God's not going nowhere. He's right where he's supposed to be. But where are you in relation to him? Are you close to him? Or are you walking away from him? Who's your first love? Let's go to the next church. That's Ephesus. Smyrna. You know, there was no condemnation. Jesus had nothing bad to say about Smyrna. He said in verse 9, Revelation 2, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. He encouraged them to persevere through persecution and even imprisonment. But it looks like most of you aren't in prison here today. Or are you? Because what enslaves you in your mind? What bondage tries to enslave you? Are you enslaved to your anger, to your addiction? Are you enslaved to an individual because you are so codependent upon them that you can't walk and make your own decisions? Are we enslaved to the things of this world? See, you may not be in a physical prison, but a lot of you are in prison in your minds. And you need to find freedom that only Jesus can bring. But he encourages us that there's going to be some suffering, there's going to be some persecution. You might be imprisoned. And he talks about 10 days. And you know, I love it when prophets talk about numbers and timelines. Because you could read 50 commentaries and one will say, no, it's a 10 literal days. And one say, no, it represents 10 years. And someone else will say it recommends, uh, you know, like, I don't know. If I had to pick, I'd have to pick. If I had to pick, I'd have to pick the 10 years before Constantine relieved the church of persecution from 302 to 312 A.D. Some of you are going to be persecuted for 10 years. That would be mine. But there's lots of them. It doesn't matter. Pick one. The point is, there was a period of time, and some of you are going to go through some persecution. Some of you are going to suffer some stuff, but there's a season where we go through suffering and persecution, and then there's a season of glory and deliverance and freedom. But you have to be holding fast to the truth that you once know. My thought would be, let's hold fast to our first love, Jesus Christ, and then love people. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. 
Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Did he say everyone? I didn't sign up for that preacher. Sorry, I didn't write it. You can argue with Timothy when you get to heaven. Pergamum, the next church. In verse 13, I know that you live in a city where Satan has his throne and you've remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan City. So we see that it, over in Pergamum, they even started killing the believers. There was a martyr there. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. So they encourage loyalty even in the face of martyrdom but then he has this sin of Balaam. Can I tell you what they did? Balaam taught Israel how to operate in the flesh to get them out of the protection of Jesus. They moved them out from under God's protection. They tolerated flesh-driven behavior. And if you allow your flesh to dictate your life, you are going to remove yourself from the protection that the Creator has for you. Because the enemies of Israel could not attack when they were doing the things that God had told them to do. It was when they got into disobedience and they got outside of what God ordered them to do that they got themselves into trouble every time. They tolerated flesh-driven behaviors. Are you submitted to your flesh or are you submitted to your spirit? Do you live a spirit-driven life or do you live a flesh-driven life? I can go observe things in the parking lot from the cameras on the way into the parking lot and on the way out, and that'll tell me a lot. Theatra. Verse 19. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. You know, I like that about that church because it shows me that they were growing, they were maturing, they were becoming disciples where they took on the nature and the character of Christ. But I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. So he teaches them to commit sexual sin and eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I'll throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve." In verse 24, I have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. You know, they tolerated Jezebel, and Jezebel here, it's a mixture of love for the world and love for God. You can't have two lovers, that's adultery. If God is your lover, you can't love the world system as well or you're committing adultery on God. And that's the spirit of Jezebel, to take people into the mixture where they blend the world and God. You see this a lot when people wanna play Christianity on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, they live how they wanna live. They live a flesh-driven life. See, that's under Jezebel. Jesus talks in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32, about separating the sheep from the goats. And, and 
when Jesus is talking about, he says, I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. That means I don't have to separate the sheep and the goats. I just have to preach the word, and the sheep and the goats are going to come up together, just like the wheat and the tares that he uses in another place. My job is to chase the wolves away, and I will and do. But the sheep and the goats, they're going to be separated by Jesus in the end. But here's my thought for you. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Because when God speaks to your heart concerning your motives and your actions, do you respond as a sheep does? Are you compliant and you go along with the authority of Christ and you obey him? Or are you like a goat and you buck the authority of God in your life? You resent the authority of Jesus in your life and you do your own thing. Because see, sheep comply with the wishes of the shepherd, whereas goats do not. If Jesus is the master shepherd, are you complying with his wishes for your life? Are you obeying his commands, or are you disobeying his commands? You know, it's the beginning of a new year. Some people make resolutions. I just encourage you to make some good decisions. You can resolve to make a good decision that you're going to spend time daily in the Word of God. If you say with your profession that you love Jesus and he's first place in your life, but you never read his word or spend any time in the Bible, your words and your actions are logically inconsistent. Well, I've always known Jesus, and me and Jesus always get along, Pastor. That's nice, but if you don't spend any time in his word... Your actions and your words are logically inconsistent. If you love him, you will obey him. How are you going to obey him if you don't know what his commands are? If you want his word to be hidden in your heart, you're going to have to spend some time reading it and meditating on it. Listen to it however you want to get the word in. But you need to spend some time in the scriptures. This is very consistent with the Christian life, so make a decision that you're going to go through your Bible this year. We've got all kinds of plans that will help you do that. Sardis is the next church. Going into chapter 3, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly, repent, and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some at the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. You know, the problem in Sardis was they were asleep. They were a church that fell asleep. You know why? Because they got comfortable celebrating yesterday's victories. They were living in the glory days of past. You know, every now and then I get talking with my kids and I start talking about the glory days of old. I saw a model in the store when we were shopping the other day and I said, oh, Isabel, that model is exactly what I look like when I met your mother. She said, that was a long time ago, Dad. But in my mind, I'm reliving the glory days. But the truth is, until I put my hand to the plow today, nothing's going to change. And there's a lot of Christians that are living in last year's victories and 20 years ago, the victories that God did in your life. And there's still some plunder that God wants you to go win today. We're not done fighting this war yet. We're still in it. I mean, 
How many know when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness because they liked to murmur and complain? They spent 40 years taking a 13-day journey. <laughs> God sent them some food every day. How many remember what that's called? Manna. And every morning, what were they supposed to do? That's right. And the day before the Sabbath, they had to collect two portions. But the rest of the time, God said, only collect as much as you because what happens if you collect too much? You get worms and it stinks. Number one, people don't listen. <laughs> Moses was angry. They didn't listen. He gave them an instruction. It was clear. They didn't listen. Created some problems for them, right? But they had to learn to depend on God every day of their life as they were on that journey until they entered into the promised land. It was a walk of faith. Caleb, when he was like 80, went and killed the giants that were living on the mountains so he could have the best land for his inheritance. At 80. If you're 80 plus, let's say your best days are ahead. Let's claim some mountains and kick some, kick some devils down. Right? Let's not live on yesterday's victories. We need some victories for today. You know, no one will ever convince me that God doesn't heal people. I've seen far too many miraculous things happen in my lifetime, but that does not invalidate the fact that people still need to be healed today. And I believe that there's a God of miracles that heals people today. I have faith because I've seen some things, but the truth is we got to believe it's for today, not for yesterday. Philadelphia, another church, no injunction really against them. I know all the things you do, verse 8, chapter 3, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you've obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they're Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you've obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. For Philadelphia, it seemed that they were walking in love. City of love, interesting. Because they had their love walk right, they just had to, they had to persevere and hold on to the truth that they were given. Don't ever give up. Don't ever quit. Don't let anyone get you out of your love walk. Because when you get out of your love walk, it's not going to go how you want it to go. There's one more church I want to talk to you about, Laodicea. In verse 15, I know all the things you do. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that's been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. Anointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Here we are again at another great paradox in scripture. He says you need to be hot or cold. You can't be both. No more mixture. You can be hot. You can be on fire for God. You can burn for him every day. 
and let your light shine before men. You can be cool like a refreshing spring that brings nourishment and hope and life. But when you stand in the middle with one foot in the church and one foot in the world, God says, bleh. God's vomit. That's what one translation says. He doesn't like lukewarm. He wants you in the kingdom or not in the kingdom. Sitting on the fence don't work in Christianity today. The church in Laodicea, it's, it's interesting because he encourages them, if you look, right, I correct and discipline everyone I love. That means if God loves you, he's going to correct you and discipline you. But a lot of people, when God tries to correct and discipline them, they run away and say, God, how could you do this to me? It's like my kids. They do that sometimes. I don't know how much you really love me if you're going to give me this consequence. I didn't do it. You did it. Now the consequence of your choice is this. You chose the consequence. I didn't, but I do love you, so I will enforce the consequence. But how many times do we get upset with God because he's got his finger on our life because he's addressing an area because our heart is not where it's supposed to be? Or we're bucking the authority of Christ as he's trying to encourage us to make the right decision. He's directing us down a path that we don't want to walk down. Which leads me to seven questions for you. Maybe I want to back up a step. Has anyone ever mixed the wrong spices together when you were cooking? Now, some of you don't ever cook, so you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Your idea of food is sticking something in a machine that beeps, and you hit the button, and presto. But some of us who are a little bit more on the adventurous, living life on the dangerous side, we take raw food and add spices to it and hope it comes out in a way that people will eat it. But every now and then, if you're brave, you try a spice combination that just doesn't work. I've done that once or twice. You can ask my wife. <laughs> and then nobody eats it but me. <laughs> but it's kind of like that in life when we try to mix Christianity with love for the world system. It doesn't taste very good on either side. Because Christians are looking at you like, why aren't you living like you're supposed to? And the world's looking at you like, you call yourself a Christian, but then you live just like us. It's not very becoming of Christians to live like the world system that we're in. Now to my seven questions. And the truth is, awakening and revival will happen through prayer when people pray. But here's some things that are going to prevent you from praying, and I think we just talked about all seven of them. The first thing that prevents you from praying is, have you lost your first love? Is God really on the throne of your heart? Do you profess that he's on the throne of your heart, but in action you live differently, or is God really on the throne of your heart? Because if he's on the throne of his, your heart and you love him, you will absolutely want to spend some time with him in prayer. And if you're spending time with him in prayer and you're spending some time in his word and you're putting his word into your heart, guess what? You're going to be hearing from him on a daily basis. And as a result of that, your love walk with others will be very good. You're going to love people enough to sacrificially share the message of hope with them. You're going to love people enough to tell them your testimony. You're going to love people enough to invite them out to church. 
Are you afraid to suffer persecution? I don't know what they're going to think. Who cares what people think? We all make decisions based on what people think sometimes, but the truth is we need to care what the Creator thinks more than we care what people think. Now, persecution for the cause of Christ is actually not a bad thing because the church grows. But church persecution because we're fools is something totally different. So if you're at work and you've got eight hours that you're paid to do a job by your employer, maybe that's not the best time for you to be preaching to all your coworkers when you're supposed to be doing something else. If you're persecuted for that, you're just foolish. But I still love you. That's self-inflicted harm. I don't even know if that's persecution for the cause of Christ. That's just persecution because you didn't make a very good choice. But there's other times that we can let our light shine, or even when you're at work, you can respond a certain way and act a certain way. You know, some of you may have encountered this, but people will offer you something that's outside the bounds. Well, you know, I'll use this as a for instance. I remember there was a time when I needed a driveway, and some of the people that priced me came in very low, but the problem was they kind of neglected to add the tax to that. What do you mean? It's a cash deal. Just give me the cash and I'll make sure that you get a good price. But see, my Bible tells me that I'm supposed to give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. So I pay my taxes and I pay my tithes. And I expect that my driveway is going to be blessed. You see, but I'm not going to compromise truth to save a dime. Are you afraid to suffer persecution? Uh, third question. Does your flesh rule or your spirit? Does your are you, do you live in the flesh all the time and let your flesh rule you and your emotions rule you? Or do you let your spirit rule you? And do you let truth from the word of God tell you and dictate to you how you're going to live your life day in, day out? Because unfortunately in churches, too many people let their flesh rule. And it does not reflect well. It's not something that looks good on you as a Christian. Are you committing adultery? If you're in natural adultery, you need to repent of that and get out of it quickly. If you're in spiritual adultery because something else has taken God's place in your life, in your affection, on the throne of your heart, you need to get out of that and repent too. But if we have lost our first love, if we're afraid to suffer persecution, if we let our flesh rule, if we're in adulterous relationships, it is not going to be conducive to us wanting to pray. And if we're not willing to pray for others, you're not going to see the awakening that all of you said you wanted at the beginning of the message. But oh wait, I've got three more questions. Are you living in yesterday's glory? We need fresh glory from the Creator every single day. I need fresh presence of God every day of my life. He gives me the grace for today, today. I don't have grace for tomorrow yet, and I don't have grace for yesterday anymore. I've got grace for today. And you need to get a fresh word from God every day of your life. Are you trusting God as you hold on to his promises despite opposition? You know, sometimes things don't work out like we think they're supposed to. Sometimes there's opposition to the promise that God has given us. Sometimes you walk through the valley. Sometimes you go through a low time. Sometimes it looks like the world is falling in. 
But are you going to trust God and hold on to his promises despite your circumstances, despite the opposition that you're facing? Because if you get your eyes off God and onto the circumstance, I assure you, you're not going to be praying for the lost. And then finally, you're either in or you're out. You're either in God's kingdom or you're not. If you think you're halfway in, you're not in. I think that's the point of the Church of Laodicea. You're either in, you're all in, and you're in for God, and you may as well submit to his plan for your life, love him, serve him, honor him, let him change your heart, and then love others. That's what being in is. We're in. None of us are perfect. I haven't arrived yet. If you think you have, (laughs) my suggestion is go back and read Charles Finney's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. No, Charles Finney's backslider at heart. Read about the backslider at heart that Finney talks about. If you're feeling pretty holy, like you have nothing wrong with you. That'll learn you. Unless I had the spirit of prayer, I could do nothing. Why don't you stand with me? And if you had a ch- didn't have a chance to grab an element, please grab one. As we prepare to celebrate our covenant meal, I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 Corinthians Chronicles 7, one verse. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. The altar's open. If you want to make a commitment to pray more, if you want to make a commitment to put God on the throne of your heart, if you need to make a commitment that you want your spirit to rule and not your flesh, whatever's going on inside of you, if the word of God is speaking you to this morning and you'd like to join in faith with us up here, or if you would just like to stand in the gap for our nation, you're welcome to come and join me at the altar. And I'm gonna pray. And you're welcome to come, even while I pray. Father, I thank you. There's a fresh new year ahead of us. And Lord, many of us desire revival. We desire an awakening in your church, where there's an increase in your presence and your power, and that the culture starts shifting back towards righteousness. But Lord, we know it starts with humility. And we confess the sins of our nation to you today. Lord, we confess the murder and the violence and the antichrist spirit that's in the land. And we ask, Lord, that you're gonna awaken your people all over this city and nation, Lord, that the Christians are gonna rise up and return to you in prayer and return in righteousness and that the power of God is gonna be released from coast to coast and that Canada's gonna get shaken like Canada's never been shaken. Lord, even for that province of Quebec, which has less than 1% born-again Christian, Lord, I ask that you're going to reveal your glory and your power to our nation today. In Jesus' name.
And Father, as we stand here, united in purpose today, I know that the blood is the great equalizer because it takes any sin and it removes it. So Father, as we have released forgiveness in our life this day, we thank you that we can receive your forgiveness. And in those areas, Lord, that we're still in process, I thank you that your grace is sufficient, that you sustain us, that you lead us to truth every day and you help us. Clothed in your armor and your presence, we can go forward sharing the love and the goodness of God with others. Help us to keep you first in our life despite the temptation to put ourselves on the throne. And Father, I ask that you're going to release your power. Healing the sick right now, if anybody's out of alignment with your word, I thank you for life to come now. Releasing from iniquity and bondage, shattering the strongholds in the mind, the lies and the unbelief. And I thank you, Father, that the liberating spirit of Jesus is present today in Jesus' name.